Hi, and welcome to a special award edition of NASIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus here in Washington, D.C. Today, we'll be joined by Virginia's Chief Data Officer, Carlos Rivero, who will discuss the Virginia Framework for Addiction Analysis and Community Transformation, or FACT. We're excited to be highlighting some of NASIO's 2020 award winners. This program won a NASIO State IT Recognition Award this year, and Carlos is here to tell us all about it. Carlos, thanks so much for joining us on NASIO Voices. It's my pleasure, Amy. Thank you for having me. Sure. So before we get into your award-winning program that we want to talk about, tell us first a bit about yourself and your background. Fantastic. And it's kind of funny to hear an award-winning program. Um, and I think we, we joke uh, within the FACT community that it's now the multi-award-winning program, so it's pretty funny. But anyway, my background, so it's pretty interesting because I, I actually started off as a scientist or really looking at marine ecology as uh, my discipline of choice. Uh, but through a variety of different iterations and, and you know, universe conspiracies, um, I ended up working a lot with data and, and really having a passion for data. So early on in my career as a research associate at the University of Miami, Rosenstiel School for Marine and Atmospheric Science, which we affectionately call Rasmus, I was uh, involved in, in a wide variety of landscape ecology projects, uh, working on Tampa Bay, Biscayne Bay, and Florida Bay. And being able to tie all of those different types of spatial models together um, was one of the core things that I had to work on as, as the GIS analyst, is being able to tie all of those models together. And the, the glue that brought them all together was data, right? And, and being able to integrate data in a variety of different structures and formats from all these different types of models and all these different programming languages. But being, you know, the spatial aspect was, was one aspect of the glue, but the other aspect was that it was all founded in data, right? Being able to move data around. So that initially, uh, you know, kicked off my career in more of the data sciences and the geospatial sciences. And then with NOAA Fisheries, I was doing more of that kind of work with, you know, highly migratory species, uh, satellite tracking of those uh, species, and looking also at uh, large marine ecosystems like the Gulf of Mexico and um, the Gulf Stream and things like that, and physical oceanography and biological oceanography and chemical oceanography, and how all those data assets come together to affect the ecology and the population dynamics of, of species. So, you know, it's, it's pretty much, you know, a lot of different things happening, but they're all centered around data, right? Being able to leverage data the most uh, effectively and efficiently to be able to get a better understanding of what's happening out there in our natural ecosystems. And so after about 15 years with NOAA Fisheries, and then went on to the Department of Transportation's Federal Transit Administration, where I had the fortune of being not just the chief data officer, but also the chief enterprise architect. So in that role, I had really complete control over the full data lifecycle from collection and ingestion all the way through intelligence and really, you know, uh, be able to implement structural changes in how the development teams implemented data, built out their applications to really, you know, meet our, and, and comply with our standards, with our best practices, with our data policies, put, put in a variety of different gatekeeper reviews to make sure that the data quality was always in check as the data was moving through the system so that we could get better intelligence or the best intelligence rather at the tail end of, of that process. And so having all of that and, and that complete control really gave me a, a full view of you know, what it takes to, to bring data into the organization and then make it available as an intelligence capability. And so that ultimately transcended into my role with the Commonwealth of Virginia, which is now where I am the chief data officer. Great. Yeah. Careers are funny like that sometimes. It looks like you're doing totally different things, but then there's this thread that weaves through that 
makes it all make sense, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So now if you could kind of walk us through the history and implementation of the Virginia Framework for Addiction Analysis and Community Transformation, which it's a lot of words, so you, you call it fact. What kind of problems were you dealing with that motivated its creation and how did it come about? So the interesting thing is that my involvement in FACT or, or the opioid pilot project as, as it originally was created was mandated by the General Assembly when they created my position. So when uh, they drafted the legislation um, within the Secretary of Administration to create my position, they also mandated that you know this particular individual would also work with the Data Sharing Analytics Advisory Committee to work on an opioid pilot project to demonstrate the value and efficiency of sharing data and developing out data analytics and utilizing intelligence to solve a very complex, very difficult problem, which obviously is our opioid epidemic. Coming into my position, I was very fortunate that the Department of Criminal Justice Services had received a Department of Justice grant, the TIPS grant, to actually kick off a pilot project in the Winchester community. And they and they selected Clarion as our technology partner. So as a result of that kind of synergy, all, you know, all things coming together at the same time at, at the right place, I was able to participate in that project early on, guide its evolution as we had conversations with the different stakeholders in the Winchester community, develop out the data architecture to support it, build out all the data framework and the governance and the data trust model, and really kind of implement a lot of the things that I wanted to do at a large scale, but at a very small scale within the FACT project. And essentially, you know, the main purpose of FACT is to empower community leaders to make the best decisions in response to the opioid epidemic, right? We feel that the way to solve any of these issues is at the community level, right? The, the states have a role to play, the federal government has a role to play, but really where the action happens is at the community level. So how do we empower those community leaders, whether they're law enforcement leaders or health services or community services or faith services, you know, how do we empower each of those different types of community leaders that come in with a variety of different perspectives with the right intelligence to take the right action at the right time. That's what FACT is really all about, is bringing in statewide data assets, local data assets, building up analytics and intelligence that allows them from whatever perspective they're looking at the problem to be able to make an informed decision that's data-driven. And, and ultimately what that means is that we're able to take a wide variety of different resources. So from the federal government, we're bringing in financial resources. From the state government, we're bringing in data resources and infrastructure. And then at the community level, we're bringing in human resources to help solve this problem. So Carlos, congratulations again about the award. I mean, it's incredibly meaningful work that you're doing. And we know, you know, you pick up any paper across the country or, you know, turn on the news, you will see, you know, the disastrous impacts of the opioid epidemic across the country. But I, I want to focus on some of the positive aspects. And so can you talk to us a little bit about some of your successes or impacts in, uh, in Virginia so far? Yeah, absolutely. So specifically within the Winchester community, we are very fortunate to have quite a few folks on the, in the coalition that were very passionate about you know, taking data-driven action, right? And being able to coordinate with each other to bring data assets together to help solve some of these problems. And, and one of the problems is immediate response, right? So when you're talking about law enforcement, you know, they're working on you know, the supply side of the curve. They're looking at how the drugs are coming into the community, what can they do to curb that that impact and how can they become more aware of when these these events are occurring so they can act more responsibly to that situation and early on this year we had the richmond overdose symposium where special agent josh price from uh, virginia state police 
who leads the drug and gang task force out in the Winchester community, gave an anecdotal um, you know, experience of what they did last year when they started to see, because of the, the fact dashboard and the intelligence were able to provide them, seeing the number of overdoses coming into the hospitals in near real time start to increase beyond the normal base level or baseline threshold. Right? And as a result of that, he pretty much turned to his task force and said, drop everything you're doing, go to the hospital right now, we have an overdose uh, spike on our hands right now. And so mm. they all went to the hospital, they interviewed everyone that was there, they were able to identify the location of where these individuals were getting their drugs from. So they were able to execute a search warrant and lock that place down. And for the next three weeks, they did not have a single overdose event in that community. That to me is, is profound impact for a community where law enforcement is no longer playing catch up, right? I mean, in some ways they're still a little bit reactive because they're not looking at it predictive, but you know, they're able to make much more responsive decisions based on the intelligence they're provided because they're not having to wait a month to get the number of overdoses that happened in that community that, you know, that month. They're able to get it every single day and keep their finger on the pulse to determine when do they need to take action and if action is warranted, what intensity of action. Um, another positive result that we've seen is an impact to how that community is responding to the, the individuals that are experimenting with substances. Previously, you know, their outreach efforts was focused on the high schools, but you know, with, the, with the data that we were able to bring into the system, they were able to identify a metric called age of first use. And on that metric, they were starting to realize that for some of these substances, the age of first use is down at the middle school level. And, and being able to identify for which substance when the individuals are starting to experiment with them was critical to being able to tailor outreach efforts to specifically target those age groups. They're experimenting with these, with these substances. And as a result of that, also, they were able to prove to an external organization, a nonprofit health services organization, and get them to provide them you know, funding to have substance use screening kits available to parents so that if you suspect that your child is, is taking a substance, that you have a way to go and get a free screening kit that you can do in the, in the privacy of your own home and you can determine right then and there if your child is using any type of substance. And I think it screens about 16 different types of substances. So you know, in essence, it's, it's empowering parents and caregivers and, and guardians with the, with the capability to, you know, monitor their children and have conversations about substance use, right, when it's uh, appropriate to do so. If you suspect that your child may be using drugs or, or taking substances, you know, it's very difficult for a parent to turn and say, where do I go? Who do I talk to? What do I do? Right. And so this really shifts that conversation to empower those individuals to take action and to take decisive action to curb it before it becomes a much larger problem uh, later in the future. It's a really good point. And it's fascinating. You know, you're talking about empowering law enforcement to actually use accurate and informed data to make, you know, these types of decisions. Um, so one of the things I think Amy and I were talking about is sort of, we view everything over the past eight or nine months in terms of how has COVID impacted work across IT. And so just generally, how have you seen the ongoing pandemic impact the opioid crisis and uh, impact your work? So first on the opioid crisis, as part of the, the data governance framework, we have a working group that gets together and talks about 
you know, the data assets that we have, how to best govern them, how do we use them for the analytics and intelligence. And in those conversations, as the pandemic was starting to, you know, increase and, and our response started to become more uh, stringent with lockdowns and, and isolation and things like that, we all speculated and understood that there was a, a very large potential for negative impact mm-hmm. on the opioid community, right? Because, you know, of that isolation, because of, of the variety of different mental health aspects associated with uh, substance use disorder, we, we already anecdotally started to, to understand that there was going to be an increase in the number of overdoses as a result of not just the lockdown themselves and the isolation, but also of the early release. So when, when you talk about releasing individuals early from prisons and, and jails, where they are receiving treatment for whatever substances that they're addicted to, and specifically opioids, when they are released into the public, there's a very high likelihood that within the first two weeks, they're going to use again. And it's even more concerning when in their mind, they think that they're able to go back and use the same amount that they were using before they went in, but their body has changed as a result of their treatment. So they are no longer as tolerant of that dosage as they were before. And and that leads to more overdoses, unfortunately. And and so those are the things that we were we were very worried about. And and the data started to show that, yeah, that that, that is absolutely correct. Um, that what we had anecdotally thought is, is being shown, reflected in the data. Yeah. So um, I understand that you're using the framework now for uses beyond opioids, including COVID-19. Tell us about that and how you see the future of FACT. Yeah. The way we structured FACT, it was, it was thinking about the macro while implementing in the micro. Um, you know, looking at the pilot project as a testbed for the Commonwealth Data Trust, for the data governance framework, and then also for the uh, cloud-based data consolidation platform, right? And so being able to look at all those different critical components of a a data sharing project and be able to implement it in a small scale, just kind of test things out and play with things and kind of make sure that, you know, we we can tweak and, and, you know, prod here and there on some of the components to just get a better feel for what works, what doesn't work, and to what level can we scale it out. And essentially, when the pandemic hit, we were in a really good spot because of the expansion of the data governance framework, because of the work that I've been doing with the Office of the Attorney General to build out the Commonwealth Data Trust, which is that legal framework for identifying the roles and responsibilities of all of the entities responsible in the data sharing relationship. Um, And then also the cloud-based data sharing platform, which we've been using to help bring all these data assets together and then support our analytics. So we already had the basic foundational components from FACT that we were already working on scaling out. And so when the pandemic hit and our need to bring in a variety of different data partners to get a better idea of what's happening out in the real world, one of those partners was the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association. That's a private organization that is you know, not associated with state government at all. And because we had the governance framework, because we had the legal framework, the Commonwealth Data Trust, we were able to bring them in very, very quickly. So usually when you have these data sharing agreements, you know, it usually takes anywhere between six to 12 months to work out the legal aspects of who's sharing data with whom and who's responsible for what. We were able to knock that out in, in about a week and a half. I think two weeks is what it wow. took us to really knock out the legal discussion of, you know, what do we need to do to get them to sign the Commonwealth Data Trust? And because of all that work we'd already done. And once that data trust is signed, we were onboarding data within days and then as soon as we started importing the data, we were able to turn around a dashboard within another couple of days. So I think from the time we started to get data to the time that first uh, iteration of the dashboard came out, I think it was less than a week. 
Wow. Um, and that's impressive. I mean, and that's all because of the work that we had already been working on on the FACT project that we were able to expand. We were already scaling out anyway, but to accommodate the COVID-19 response. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you have advice for other states who may be interested in using a similar model? Yeah, absolutely. It's all about relationships, right? And being able to identify who are the critical stakeholders that you need to bring to the table Mm -hmm. to have these conversations. But I think, you know, by and large, having your office of the attorney general or something similar that can provide that legal input on the data sharing agreements themselves. And one of the things that we did is we, we stayed away from point to point data sharing agreements because that is not very efficient, especially when you're talking about 63 executive branch agencies that in some way or shape or form want to share data with each other, especially for those agencies that have, uh, you know, a a wealth of data, like, you know, Department of Health that everyone wants to have access to. Getting into these, you know, singular data sharing agreements with each individual agency is not a very efficient approach. So that's why, you know, we looked at the Commonwealth Data Trust, the trust concept, the trust model to look at how do we leverage the office of the chief data officer as the trustee in this relationship to be responsible and accountable for sharing data, right? So making sure that the data elements that a data provider has authorized for use is only available to those organizations and entities that have the authority to access them. And so from a state perspective, I think that that's a more rational and more efficient way to go when you're talking about trying to implement statewide data sharing. Great. That's great. So, Carlos, we always like to end things on NASIO Voices by asking uh, our guests a couple of fun non-work questions, um, and we call this our lightning round. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions. Are you ready, sir? Go for it. All right. So throughout the last eight months, however many months it's been since uh, COVID uh, hit us, have you learned anything new about yourself? Wow. Oh, man, that's digging deep. It, it, we're, uh, we, we, we really ask the hard-hitting questions here. I, I enjoy being alone. <laughs> <laughs> I like having alone time. It hasn't been as, as often as, as I'd like it to be, but I don't want to be alone all the time. Let me clarify that. Right. But, um, being in, in, in self-isolation, obviously, with my family and my daughter's looking at me right now with this face, like, how can you say that? Um, <laughs> You do appreciate the time that you've had to yourself every now and again to just be with yourself, right? And yeah. uh, and I think as a result of the pandemic, few of us have had that opportunity. Well, I know Amy and I can sympathize with you. We have young kids ourselves, and it is certainly a challenge to find time for ourselves. Yeah. So definitely appreciate the the hours here and there that we can get, you know, once every few weeks or months, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, exactly. Few and far between. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and the second question, and this is not this, our podcast is not being sponsored by the Virginia Department of Tourism, but what's your favorite thing about living in the Commonwealth? Uh, the people, the, the people are amazing. I just have such a, a great time just interacting with folks whether I'm in Northern Virginia or Richmond or Hampton Roads or Southwest Virginia, um, it doesn't matter where you are. It's just, you can strike up a conversation with anyone and, and find commonality. And I just think that's just a wonderful thing about, about the state in general. Very yeah. well said. And it is, it is certainly a beautiful state. Well, Carlos, we want to congratulate you again on the award. You know, you guys are doing some fantastic work and we're really thrilled that we were able to highlight it uh, on the podcast. And um, we look forward to keeping tabs on fact and you and uh, hope to talk to you uh, sometime soon. Fantastic. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you.
Thanks again for listening to NACIO Voices. We'll be sure to put a link to the FACT program award submission in the show notes. You can also find all of the award finalists and recipients in NACIO's online awards library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Thanks again for listening.